Welcome back to Brainwaves, continuing medical education for the neurologist and the trainee. I'm Jim Siegler, and today on the show we've got Dr. Ali Hamidani here. You've remembered him from prior episodes on various topics within neuro-ophthalmology, and today he's going to shift gears and talk to us about some neuro-otologic issues, specifically dizziness. So welcome to the show again. Thank you. Let's just start with a case of a patient who presents, and the one-liner you get from the ED is there's a 57-year-old woman who presents with dizziness. What kind of thoughts are immediately running through your head, and how do you approach this problem? Well, I think the elephant in the room when it comes to dizziness is what do people mean by dizziness? Uh, and it's a really challenging issue, not only because dizziness is hard for patients to describe and explain, but because it also means different things to different people. There are some formal definitions used in the literature that are kind of helpful. So I think it's the International Classification of Vestibular Disorders um, describes just dizziness as a sensation of altered spatial awareness and orientation. Uh, and that's used to contrast it from vertigo, which is described as the illusion of self-motion in its absence. So I think a couple of points that are worth noting about vertigo are that, number one, it doesn't include the word spinning. People can experience vertigo as rocking back and forth, as swaying, bobbing up and down. So vertigo is a description of what you feel sort of internally, but not what you see. So that's a related term called oscillopsia, which is the illusion of motion of the visual surround in its absence. But you can definitely have one without the other. And while they're often due to similar processes, um, it can be helpful to differentiate between them. One of the things that I immediately think about is when a patient complains of dizziness, are they complaining of lightheadedness and faintness? And one thing that can be particularly difficult for trainees, and I've definitely had my fair share of difficulty with this, is when patients feel unsteady on their feet due to other issues not attributable to vertigo or a central process. You know, that's definitely a great point that balance and movement require multiple modalities, not just vestibular proprioception and cerebellar coordination, but also proprioception from the peripheral nerves and spinal cord and, you know, appropriate motor coordination and things like that. You mentioned dizziness and lightheadedness and trying to differentiate that from other causes, uh, which is definitely something that uh, we try to do in the emergency department. I think the challenge there is that not only are the terms of dizziness and vertigo used interchangeably by different providers and patients, but the same patient will describe the same symptom in different words when asked by different people. This is actually something that's been well studied. And I think that has to do with not only history taking itself, but also the fact that these symptoms are intrinsically very difficult to explain. And so patients reach for different terms at different times in an effort to do so. Because getting at the symptom quality of dizziness is so challenging, what's in the literature been shown to be more helpful is rather than focusing on the quality, you know, is it spinning? Is it not? Is it vertigo? Is it dizziness is to focus more on the temporal quality, so the speed of onset and the duration and whether the symptoms have progressed or not. And so I divide dizziness and vertigo into four categories based off of the temporal characteristics. So there's acute constant dizziness, transient positional dizziness, recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness, and chronic progressive dizziness. And when I see someone with dizziness, I try to put them into one of these categories, and that helps me narrow down my differential. So let's go back to our case of the 57-year-old woman who comes in with dizziness in the ED, and when you evaluate her, she tells you that symptoms began 30 minutes ago and have not remitted, and she's never experienced something like this before. So that sounds like acute constant dizziness to me, 
One sort of question that always comes up is, is this the first attack of someone who will later go on to have recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness? And I guess there's no way to really know for sure, but I think because this is their first time, I would err on the side of focusing on the differential for acute constant dizziness, and if they get better and then come back later with another episode, we can then switch to something else. The most concerning diagnosis in an adult patient with acute constant vertigo are acute ischemic stroke, or hemorrhage. A head CT should almost always be obtained to rule out posterior fossa hemorrhage, but it has an extremely low sensitivity for identifying an acute infarction, on the order of 10-20%. to 20%. Inflammatory causes such as demyelinating disease and rhombencephalitis may also cause acute constant dizziness. You should also consider vestibular neurotoxicity. Anticonvulsant medications, specifically sodium channel blockers like phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, and other medications like lithium, tricyclic antidepressants, amiodarone, antibiotics like gentamicin, and platinum-based chemotherapies, as well as alcohol and illicit substances, should be considered. However, toxic ingestion typically presents more subacutely over minutes to hours. Finally, vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, often post-viral or idiopathic, should be a part of your differential for acute vestibular syndrome. And this comes up a lot in the review of systems. Did a patient ever experience any recent fevers, chills, night sweats, or other viral prodrome before having an attack of vertigo? How often is that even a reliable indicator of having a vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis? In general, in neurology, when we talk about these post-viral vestibular neuritis or Guillain-Barre or something like that, I find it very challenging to use that information because viral gastroenteritis or upper respiratory infections are so common, I'm sure at one point, maybe 10 or 15% of the population is having it like right now as we speak, that if you talk to anyone in the ED with any symptom, I'm sure a lot of them had a recent viral infection. And I think on the other side, not everyone with vestibular neuritis has this antecedent history. Maybe they had it and they don't remember. So I think if you can get that history, it's nice. It maybe like makes for a better package when you're trying to sell the story to your attending. But I don't really use that that much to persuade or dissuade me from pursuing a particular diagnosis. For this patient who has an acute episode of vertigo and you're trying to distinguish whether it's a vascular or an inflammatory cause, what are some of the little tricks you do in the ED to help differentiate the two? So in terms of history, I think there are a few things that can help, but the history tends to be a little bit limited. Uh, so for example, one thing you might uh, ask is whether there are any other neurologic symptoms besides dizziness. Um, and if, if there were more, like diplopia or dysphagia or dysphonia, that would definitely push you more uh, in the direction of a brainstem or cerebellar stroke. If there weren't, you might be tempted to lean more towards vestibular neuritis, but there are definitely patients who have stroke and who have dizziness as the only symptom. Peripheral causes of vertigo tend to produce more prominent uh, nausea and vomiting. So like whenever I see someone with a bucket next to them in the ED, I tend to be a little bit reassured. Um, That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's, I feel better for them. Sort of another thing that goes along those lines is hearing loss. You would think that hearing loss is a more peripheral localizing feature, which is true, but depending on where the stroke is and if it affects the peripheral cochlea and vestibular apparatus directly as opposed to just the brainstem, you can get hearing loss due to infarction of the labyrinthine artery, which is a branch off of the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, AICA. As part of the general exam, you know, when you're testing ocular motility, nystagmus would definitely be something to look for in someone with dizziness. I divide the exam techniques into two categories, ones that point very clearly towards a peripheral vestibular lesion, and then ones that point very clearly towards a uh, brainstem or cerebellar lesion. 
in peripheral vestibular disease, the pattern of nystagmus is called vestibular nystagmus. It's unidirectional, uh, and it obeys Alexander's law, which is to say that it increases in frequency and amplitude in the opposite direction of gaze from the site of reduced vestibular function. Um, it attenuates a little bit in primary gaze, and it's least prominent when looking towards the side of vestibular hypofunction. It also has a little horizontal and vertical component, and it persists in upgaze. Like, it has a persistent horizontal component in upgaze, which is uh, relatively unique in nystagmus. One test that's often done in the ED is the head impulse test, or head thrust. Patients ask to maintain fixation, usually on the examiner's nose, and then the head is turned rapidly to the left or right by about 30 degrees or so. And in normal vestibular function, the eyes maintain fixation. But if you turn the head towards a side of reduced vestibular function, the eyes won't maintain fixation, and then you'll see a catch-up saccade. And so that points very clearly towards peripheral vestibular dysfunction. The vestibular apparatus is tonically firing on both sides um, at all times, and if your head is level, then both sides are firing equally. If you tilt your head to one side, meaning if you try to take your ear and touch your shoulder, the side that you're tilting down would increase its activity, and then the side that you're tilting away from would decrease. The reason this is important is that we tilt our heads a little bit all the time, just maybe when the car is moving, when you're walking, and when we do that, our whole world doesn't tilt up and down. We compensate for it with our vision, and the way we do that is when you tilt your head to one direction, one eye will elevate an intort, and the other eye will depress an extort to try and maintain a normal, what's called subjective visual vertical, but to maintain your visual field in its proper orientation. Uh, in a skew, what happens is the pathway on one side that's responsible for maintaining that tonic vertical eye position decreases. So it basically tricks your brainstem into thinking that you've tilted your head one way, and so one eye's uh, elevated and intorted, the other's depressed and extorted as a result. So one thing that comes up is sometimes people might mistake or kind of have difficulty differentiating a skew from a fourth nerve palsy, because a fourth can also cause a hyperphoria with otherwise pretty good motility. One key there is that in a fourth nerve palsy, the high eye is extorted whereas in a skew, the high eye is intorted. A skew is uh, something that you would expect to see only in a brainstem lesion and not really in anything else. I think there are some, a few cases that have been reported of skew in association with vestibular neuritis, but it's um, quite rare. Uh, so skew is defined as a vertical misalignment of the eyes that's not due to a third or fourth nerve palsy. Um, and so the way you would diagnose this is you would uh, have otherwise normal ocular motility, you would have a vertical misalignment of the eyes that's elicited on alternating eye cover or other tests like that. Um, it's usually pretty comitant, meaning it's pretty equal in different directions of gaze, and it can be either due to a lesion in the sort of midbrain on the side of the higher eye, or it can be due to a medullary lesion on the side of the lower eye. So one way to remember this is high, high, low, low, either a high lesion on the high eye side or a low lesion on the side of the lower eye. So we just talked about uh, the head impulse test, nystagmus, and looking for a skew. Um, this constellation of exam maneuvers has been codified in the HINTS battery, which stands for head impulse nystagmus and test of skew. This was published out of Hopkins in I think, 2009 or so, uh, and is based on a study done in their emergency department there. Um, I guess one thing I want to emphasize about HINTS is that HINTS is designed to uh, identify a, a very clearly benign pattern. And so for that reason, Patients who end up in the sort of non-benign or dangerous pattern may not necessarily have a stroke, but that just refers to patients who need further investigation. So according to the HINT study, a benign exam is someone who has an abnormal head impulse test and someone who has unidirectional horizontal nystagmus and someone who doesn't have a skew. And so if any of those things are absent, then they 
by definition, fall into the dangerous or worrisome category. This means someone with a normal head impulse test would be dangerous because that's not clearly peripheral. It means someone with no nystagmus at all would, would be dangerous because that's not clearly vestibular. So this study showed 100% sensitivity and 96% specificity compared to MRI in identifying stroke, which is pretty cool. All right, so let's go back to the case then. So your patient, a 57-year-old woman with acute onset vertigo half an hour ago, actually has resolution of her symptoms in the ED, and she says that they seem to have changed with regard to her position in space. I guess symptoms that are very clearly positional uh, and resolved sort of would fall more in the category of transient positional dizziness. In the world of neurology, this is in large part synonymous with benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, but it's important to keep in mind that orthostatic hypotension, or um, I guess dizziness that's due to global hypoperfusion of the cerebral hemispheres, could also be positional too. I think one thing to keep in mind is that BPPV should be elicited by specific head maneuvers in an ideal scenario. So someone who says that it's worse when they turn their head to their right, worse when they are kind of laying in bed or something like that. And the reason I say that is that anyone with any vestibular cerebellar lesion of any kind will report worsening symptoms with, with like nonspecific head motion. And so you really, ideally, your history would say that symptoms are worse with a specific maneuver rather than just any head movement in any direction. Uh, BPPV is interesting in that it is the only vestibular disorder that is due to excess activation of one side. So what happens here is you have crystals that form in the semicircular canals, uh, and when they obstruct the semicircular canals, they cause increased firing of that canal, which then causes overactivation of the vestibular nuclei on that side. Um, and that's in contrast to stroke and inflammatory diseases and everything else that are decreased uh, activity. In peripheral vestibular hypofunction, the eyes drift towards the affected side, and then there's a corrective saccade generated by the frontal eye fields in the opposite direction. That's where we get Alexander's law from, that we say that the nystagmus is beating in the opposite direction of the side of decreased vestibular activity. Uh, in BPPV, because there's overactivation of the semicircular canal, the eyes are driven in the opposite direction, and there's a corrective saccade uh, towards the ipsilateral side of vestibular overactivity. The other thing is that the two causes of transient positional dizziness that we discussed, orthostasis and BPPV, both cause pretty brief dizziness, meaning on the order of a few minutes. Um, and so when someone tells me that they've had four hours of dizziness, that to me is not BPPV. Sometimes people have BPPV, they have a few minutes of intense dizziness, and then they feel unwell for a, a longer period of time afterwards. And so eliciting that history can be helpful, but if it's truly dizziness of equal severity for longer than several minutes, then I start to wonder about whether these are non-positional or spontaneous attacks of dizziness. By far the most common uh, type of BPPV is the posterior canal BPPV. This is where you use the Dix-Halpike maneuver, and so when uh, someone turns their head 45 degrees towards the affected side and the head is in your supine and the head is dangling back, you see nystagmus that is sort of mixed vertical and rotary towards the down ear. Um, so that's posterior canal BPPV. It's the most common because laying back is kind of a common position to be in, and it's the easiest way from a gravitational standpoint for these otoconia to get down there. Horizontal canal BPPV is the next most common one. I think it's 10 to 15% of cases, whereas a uh, um, posterior canal is about 80%. The nystagmus is elicited by the supine 45 degree head turn. Basically, it's a type of nystagmus that mimics gaze evoked nystagmus. It's more or less purely horizontal because you're dealing with the horizontal semicircular canal. And there are what are called geotropic and apogeotropic forms. And that just depends on 
when you turn the head to one side, is the nystagmus more prominent in that direction of gaze or in the opposite direction of gaze? Uh, it can be a pretty tricky form, and you know because it looks like gaze above nystagmus, these are patients who frequently need neuroimaging to rule out a, a cerebellar lesion. And then the least common form is anterior canal BPPV. This one is actually also elicited by the Dix-Hallpike maneuver, but you would see nystagmus in the opposite direction of gaze. So it would be downward and rotary. Just because we talk so frequently about Epley as kind of a curative maneuver for patients with BPPV, can you tell us how that is basically an extension of the Dix-Hallpike maneuver and how effective it is? The first step of the Epley maneuver is the Dix-Hallpike maneuver. You get in that position, uh, and then the, the head is turned 90 degrees, and then the patient rolls onto their opposite side, and then sits back up is basically how it works. I think the key is to make sure that patients spend enough time in those positions um, so it's ideally at least 30 seconds in that position before they move on to the next one. It's especially difficult in the beginning because the beginning of the Epley maneuver is the Dix-Hallpike maneuver, which is the very maneuver that's meant to elicit their symptoms and their nystagmus. Patients often reflexively try to sit up to terminate those symptoms, and so you have to encourage them to stay lying there. I don't think there's such a thing as doing it too often, except that sometimes during the Epley maneuver, you can actually move the crystal out of the posterior canal and into one of the other canals. So some, that's actually... Most often when those two, when those other types of BPPV happen, it's often as a consequence of the Epley maneuver in treating posterior canal BPPV. I've also seen a lot of physicians reflexively order meclizine or antihistamines for patients with BPPV. So I'm not a huge fan of the antihistamines uh, as a treatment for dizziness, especially tr very transient dizziness like BPPV. First of all, the medications can be sedating, but also they, like any medication, take a while to be absorbed and take a while for their effect to kick in. And if someone takes meclizine at the first sign of symptoms of BPPV, chances are the symptoms will actually resolve before the medication has even been absorbed. So I think those medications are more helpful in constant dizziness like in vestibular neuritis, but I don't think that they're quite as helpful in BPPV. There is also a school of thought that medications like meclizine and scopolamine may sensitize the vestibular nerve after two to three days of use. There is evidence that withdrawal of these medications may induce a relapse in symptoms with continued intermittent use of these therapies. So here we will move on to Dr. Hamadani's third diagnostic category, recurrent spontaneous dizziness. I think this is the category with uh, one of the more broad differentials. The two most common ones uh, would be vestibular migraine and Meniere's disease. Uh, it's increasingly recognized that dizziness and vertigo are common symptoms in migraine. Sometimes they occur with migraine, sometimes independent of migraine in people with a history of migraine, and rarely someone with recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness without any other symptoms might be called sort of acephalgic vestibular migraine or something like that. Meniere's disease is a disease of vestibular uh, dysfunction of unclear etiology, but thought to be due possibly to um, excess fluid in the semicircular canals. Um, this causes recurrent attacks of dizziness lasting hours or even a day, accompanied by progressive lower frequency hearing loss. Um, the other symptoms might include a sensation of oral fullness or something like that. Other things to keep in mind, so panic attacks have a myriad of symptoms that accompany them. Dizziness is often one of them. There are also some unusual things in this category that are not very common, but I think are interesting and have some unique features, so it might be things to look out for. There's one condition called the superior canal dehiscence syndrome, or sometimes this is due to like an endolymphatic fistula. This is basically when there's a defect in the bony canal that surrounds the semicircular canals, and the, therefore the canal herniates through this bony defect. To me, this is interesting because um, these patients sometimes complain of symptoms that are elicited 
by uh, Valsalva or coughing or sneezing or things like that. So um, dizziness that's evoked by those processes or sometimes also by loud noise, um, which is called Tulio phenomenon, points to one of those etiologies. And your last category that you described is chronic progressive dizziness. Uh, in this category, I think of structural toxic and, and inflammatory kind of disorder. So structural will be something like a vestibular schwannoma or meningioma at the cerebellopontine angle. One kind of interesting history element that can sometimes be seen in vestibular schwannoma is nystagmus that's elicited by hyperventilation. This is thought to occur due to transiently improved conduction through the defective vestibular nerve. Another interesting thing about lesions of the cerebellopontine angle is you can get a mixture of vestibular nystagmus and cerebellar nystagmus if you have a meningioma that's compressing both the eighth cranial nerve and the cerebellar hemisphere. Um, this is called Bruns nystagmus. So this is vestibular in the in contralateral gaze from the side of the lesion, and then is more cerebellar gaze evoked when looking ipsilateral to the side of the lesion. Other things in this category would be toxic uh, vestibulopathy due to immunoglycosides or platinum-based chemotherapy or something like that. Because there's symmetry to this disease process, it's, you know, you may have the, like, head impulse test may not be clearly abnormal, or it may be abnormal, but bilaterally, so which is kind of a little bit harder to interpret. And they may not feel a sense of rotation towards one side because both sides are down equally. One exam technique that's useful for bilateral vestibulopathy is to test dynamic visual acuity. So normally, if you are testing someone's vision with both eyes, let's say they're 20-20, and then you passively rotate their head sort of left to right at 2 hertz, normally you should only lose one or two lines of vision because both of your vestibular systems are able to maintain fixation. But if you lose a lot of visual acuity, that suggests uh, difficulty maintaining fixation, um, which can be due to bilateral vestibular dysfunction. So what are some other causes of chronic progressive dizziness? So there's some other autoimmune causes of dizziness other than the vestibular neuritis we talked about uh, in association with acute constant dizziness. This can be isolated. Uh, it can occur in association with lupus and other systemic autoimmune diseases. There are two autoimmune syndromes that cause vestibulopathy that are relatively central nervous system isolated, which I think are worth knowing about. So one is Sussex syndrome. Another is Kogan syndrome, which is autoimmune vestibulopathy that's accompanied by episcleritis. Both of those are treated with corticosteroids, usually. And then lastly, there's a catch-all term called chronic subjective dizziness, which can occur after someone has had a previous bout of acute constant dizziness or transient positional dizziness. So if someone had vestibular neuritis, they largely recovered, but they still have a persistent sensation of imbalance who then got better. This is also poorly understood, but is thought to have some kind of neuropsychiatric bases that it's uh, driven a little bit by anxiety, and this are often treated with cognitive behavioral therapy and vestibular rehab. So that's really helpful, Ali. What are some of the points that our listeners should take away from this episode? In a nutshell, how I would summarize everything is that I think dizziness is a challenging symptom to evaluate. It's challenging for patients to deal with and everything. But I think you should feel empowered as a neurologist to tackle it. And to me, it's one of the more rewarding complaints to evaluate in the emergency department because you know if you approach it with a certain framework and use the right exam techniques, you can often elicit an answer that someone else wasn't able to do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hamadani. Appreciate you being on the show again. I'm Jim Sigler for Brainwaves. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. 
feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Jazar. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.